Second Chronicles chapter 31. If you have not turned there yet, if you'll join me there as we continue to look at the reign of Hezekiah, we have watched God through Hezekiah's reign bring quite a spiritual revival. I might categorize it as that. Some see it as just a time of reform, but it really seemed there was just a real spiritual renewal that took place under this good and godly king Hezekiah as he cleared out uh, the temple of God that had been abused and neglected and treated really like a, a trash heap in some ways. And he cleared out the temple. He reinstituted the worship of God properly within the house of the Lord, reopened temple worship, got the people seeking God again as well as then shortly afterwards, then reinstituting the observance of the Passover feast, this critical worship celebration that was so crucial and essential to the lives of God's people in their worship and their closeness to the Lord. And all this really in the matter of just the first two months or so of his reign. So he's really accomplishing some great strides spiritually. It just seems God's spirit moved in a very special way when Hezekiah came to the throne. And we've been seeing lots of characterizing marks of spiritual renewal and revival beyond even those two things that I mentioned that Hezekiah did, just the effects of that upon the people, their heart for worship, their desire to just want to seek the Lord. Remember, they extended the Passover a whole nother week long. They were just having such a great time worshiping the Lord. They said, let's just stay here for a whole nother week and continue to seek God and celebrate the Passover celebration before we return home. And we continue now with this same vein as we come to chapter 31. It tells us when all this was finished, referring to what we've looked at thus far in this kind of spiritual revival that's been happening. When all this was finished, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah and broke the sacred pillars in pieces cut down the wooden images and threw down the high places and the altars from all Judah and Benjamin, that's the southern kingdom and southern territory, as well as Ephraim and Manasseh. That's a reference to the areas up north. And again, remember, this spiritual revival was so powerful. It didn't just affect the southern kingdom of Judah alone where Hezekiah was reigning, but it actually had impact upon the northern kingdom. Remember, the nations divided at this time, but Hezekiah invited down the people of the north, and there was this unity that happened, and the people from the north, those who were still willing, came, and God touched their hearts and kind of brought a renewal of interest in the things of God for them as well. It says, verse 1, going on, until they had utterly destroyed them all. And then all the children of Israel returned to their own cities, every man to his possession. So before they depart from Jerusalem, where they've been celebrating the Passover feast, not just for one, but two weeks now, it tells us that one of the final things they did wanting to make things in their lives right with God is you can tell they're making a very strong effort to eradicate from them anything in their lives that would have them giving devotion and dedication to other things that were not of God and really things that were just sinful and wrong. There's just a, a clear wave of repentance, if you would, that moves among the people. I mean, that's what verse 1 is emphasizing to us, even just in the language. They broke down the, 
sacred pillars and pieces. These were uh, things that they used to worship foreign gods. It was a mark of their idolatry. They, they broke down these things. They didn't just put them aside. They didn't say, well, let's just put this in the closet uh, because then it would be there if they were tempted to go back and access it again. When you get radical about ridding your life from sin and idolatrous things and wrongdoing, this is the stuff that you start doing. You start just breaking things and throwing things out and ridding in every way possible by burning bridges so you can never go back to it again. You know, I'd love to hear testimonies of people maybe who struggled with substance abuse and had lots of amounts of drugs and paraphernalia worth a whole lot of money. And they say, look, when I got serious and was done and Jesus touched, I just flushed it all down the toilet. They didn't say, well, let me go out and sell it and I'll just tithe off of it. And, you know, I mean, it was none of that. You know, let me just they just they were done with it. They, they just rid themselves of it, burnt the bridge in every way possible because there was this radical cleansing, like in the book of Acts. Remember, we saw where the people, it says there uh, in one territory, when God's spirit moved, they came, remember, and they brought all their magic books and their incantation. And it says they just burned them all in the fire. They just eliminated them. And that's kind of what you have going on here. You can tell there's a powerful move of the spirit because they're breaking down these wooden images, throwing them down until they utterly destroyed them. That's a great way to treat sin in your life. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that we should make no provision for the flesh or the sinful nature. That's how you do that. Do you want to stop some area of your sinful nature from dominating your life? Do you want to rid some wrong habit or routine or idolatrous activity? Do you want to eradicate some sinful practice from your life? You got to get radical. That's the kind of stuff that you do. Remember, Jesus said it pretty strongly himself in the New Testament. Remember, Jesus said, if your arm offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. Better to, he says, enter into the kingdom with one eye than to you know, than, than to have two eyes and continue to struggle with, you know, lust or looking upon things covetously that are getting you into trouble. Better to enter into life, you know, eternal life maimed with one arm than to have two arms and to keep engaging in things that you shouldn't. And again, the idea there is just the emphasis is radicalness, just being radical, willing to suffer personal loss, no matter what it takes, how much you have to be humbled, whatever you got to do, I don't care. I will. I want it cut out of my life. I just want it rid of my life. And such a beautiful thing when God's spirit moves in a really powerful way. And there's this purification process where, again, no consideration other than I just want to do whatever I got to do to get right with God. I just want to get these things out of my life. And beautiful to see the people doing this here. And so not only do they rid themselves of what's wrong and sinful, but notice they also start to return back to doing those things that were righteous They start imparting back into their lives again things that they weren't doing that were causing them to live inconsistent with the proactive things God had told them to do in his word. So there's the removing of what's wrong, and then there's the instilling of what's right and returning to doing those things that we should be doing according to the word of God. And that's what we see then kind of beginning to happen next. It tells us in verse 2 that Hezekiah at this time appointed the divisions of the priests— and the Levites, according to their divisions, each man according to his service, the priests and Levites, for the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, to serve and to give thanks and to praise in the gates in the camp 
of the Lord. So what the chronicler is referring to here is Hezekiah reestablished the order, the appointment of the Levites and the priests that they were to serve according to God's assignment to them. Remember the way God established things with the the Levites uh, in that day and the priests is that they basically were assigned two weeks out of the calendar year, roughly, when they were to go up to Jerusalem and render their spiritual duty under the Lord. And there were basically a two-week stint where they were had to dedicate their time, kind of like, uh, what is it, is the National Guard, is that correct, if I remember correct, where you kind of serve maybe your two weeks out of the year, uh, and you, you're, you're available, and you're still connected all year long, and you have other duties and responsibilities, but there's that time of your assignment where you go and perform your service. Well, same way God established with the spiritual servants, the Levites and the priests. And so here Hezekiah is saying, look, it's time to get back to doing what God has appointed for you to do. It's time to get back to observing your service and your true calling. And so he's reestablishing something that had been neglected both by the spiritual leaders and by the people because they're returning now to the proper worship of God, giving the offerings, the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, and he's resetting back into order those patterns of God that had been neglected. Verse 3, it also says, And the king also appointed a portion of his possessions for the burnt offerings. Now, again, another way you can tell when God's spirit is really moving on a person's heart is when it begins to affect how they manage their own financial resources. Uh, Because, you know, that's usually one of the areas that sometimes is the last area for God to redeem in people's lives. Uh, and, And here, notice the king, as his heart is moved, it says, Before he asks the people, and we'll see in the next verses, he's going to tell the people, look, you need to honor God with your wealth and your resources properly as good stewards according to God's intended design, what he's commanded us to do. But before he asks them to do something himself, he puts these things into practice himself personally. He doesn't ask them to do something that he wasn't willing to do. It says the king appointed a portion of his possessions for the burnt offerings. For the morning and the evening burnt offerings, the burnt offerings for the Sabbaths, for the new moons. Those were the monthly observances. The Sabbaths were typically the weekly observances for the set feasts. Those would happen quarterly. Things like, again, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. These were the quarterly, if you would, observances as is written in the law of the Lord. And then verse four, moreover, he commanded now the people. The king did, who dwelt in Jerusalem to contribute support for the priests and the Levites that they might devote themselves to the law of the Lord. So the king now seeking to bring things back into alignment with God's design for what would be in the best welfare of the people spiritually. He now wants to bring back proper ministry, proper spiritual health. And so he commands as the king, even as our king gives command to us as his people, as the people of God, Jesus does. It says he commands the people to contribute support, notice, toward the priests and the Levites. And then you can circle that word, that, there's a reason word. Here's why they were to contribute support, not just because God's into raising money. Not because they wanted nicer stained glass windows in the temple. It says they were to contribute support so that 
the priests, the Levites, these were the anointed and designated chosen spiritual leaders to serve the people, that they might devote themselves to the law of the Lord, to, to basically give them compensation to empower them to dedicate themselves fully to the word of God and to the things of the Lord to help God's people to stay healthy spiritually, to stay strong in the ways of the Lord. You know, God, God understands very clearly, and that's why and we've looked at this before. God laid out this system in the Old Testament that the Levites and the priests were to be supported financially in their service of ministry because God knew that if that did not happen, that just the tendency would be is that they would become preoccupied in all the everyday affairs that we all do to have to survive and keep food on the table and a roof over our heads and medical bills. I mean, just in all the things that, right, we have to do to eke a living out of this world and that it would be very difficult to be able to manage being preoccupied with all those things and at the same time give adequate and, and really you know complete attention to being able to adequately serve the people spiritually. And that so therefore God established this system. Okay, others will serve in these capacities. This is my designated calling for you. And so God would bless the people enough and their crops and their herds and what they were doing in such a way that then they were to take a portion of that and give it unto the Lord. And then God said, as it was given unto him, it then was to be then distributed to those Levites and priests who were serving spiritually so that they could fully devote themselves, give complete attention to the things of the law of the Lord. And we see this same principle carried out in the New Testament as well. So again, God seeking to bring this back into order because it's something it seems that had been neglected for a time. Verse five, it says, and as soon as the commandment was circulated, the children of Israel then brought in abundance, the first fruits of the grain and wine, the oil and the honey, these are all the things, of, again, of their crops. This is the picture of their income, the idea. They were an agrarian society, grain and wine and oil and honey and all the produce of their field as they worked their fields. And they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. And the children of Israel and Judah who dwelt in the cities of Judah brought the tithe of oxen and sheep. So those who took care of herds rather than work the fields also brought the tithe of the holy things which were consecrated to the Lord their God and they laid them in heaps. So uh, again, take notice here. According to Leviticus chapter 27, where specifically there God commands the people to bring a tithe or their first fruits of all of their income, whether it was the fruit of the fields, whether it was from their herds, they were to bring the first fruit of their income of what God blessed them with as they did their work and God allowed them to experience the return of their work. They were to bring the first fruit of everything unto the Lord, specifically a tithe of it is what they were commanded to do, according to Leviticus 27 and other places as well. And again, the word tithe, keep in mind, is basically just a term that means a tenth. And the idea behind God commanding this is that God's people would recognize that the reason why their crops or their fields produced anything was because God gave them the dirt, God gave them the rain, God gave them the seed, God gave them the strength in their backs, 
and the work of their hands and the mental capacity to be able to do things to the best of their ability to then cause those things to then bear fruit and produce that they might receive what they needed for sustenance and survival and even for their own enjoyment, not just to survive, but to some degree to be able to enjoy their lives as well. And God wanted his people as an act of worship towards him and recognition that he was their provider, that he was their source to give the first fruits of what they received or they were able to, in a sense, you know, accrue as income unto the Lord as an act of worship. As a way of saying, Lord, we honor you, and Lord, this is what belongs to you, and we recognize that, Lord, if it weren't for you, we wouldn't have anything. And so it was an act of worship as well as it was an act of faith. It was a way of saying, Lord, we give this unto you, believing that as we give this unto you, that, Lord, you will continue to provide for us and to take care of us. And we want to be in alignment with what's your heart. So it was done as an act under the worship of the Lord. And notice that tithe, as God's people gave a tithe under the Lord, bringing that tithe of their income to the house of God. It tells us in verse four, it was then used to substantiate the workers and the servants of God to devote themselves to the things of worship and helping God's people, teaching the word of God, ministering to the people, as well as we've seen as well, to maintain the upkeep of the temple and the worship system, the sacrifices, the altars, and all the things that were involved with the worship lives congregationally of the people. Now, look, let me explain. A lot of times when people from a New Testament perspective have questions about the tithe or wanting to understand what that is, people tend to automatically try and determine in their mind, well, wait a minute, isn't that according to Old Testament law? That was something of the law. We're not under the law anymore. So therefore, does that really apply? Does it have any applicable means to us as Christians now from a New Testament perspective and worshipers? Well, my first way to help you sort through that, and you develop your own convictions, and let me say on on the front side of this too, as I've said before, I don't personally see the word of God mandating a New Testament Christian to have to tithe under obligation and command. That's my personal conviction. I don't see the New Testament teaching that. And from an Old Testament perspective to say, well, that was according to the law and we're not under the law anymore. Look, I would say this, the tithe technically, if you study your Bible, shows up prior to the law ever coming into existence. Abraham, As an act of worship, when he came back from the battle where they had great spoils and victory, it says he gave a tenth unto the Lord. He gave it there to Melchizedek, which likely was just a a theophany, a pre-incarnate experience of Christ, very likely. But as an act of worship and devotion to the Lord, prior to the Old Testament law coming to existence, Abraham, as a worshiper of God, gave a tenth or a tithe unto the Lord as an act of worship. Jacob, in the book of Genesis did the exact same thing. He gave a tenth, it says, unto the Lord. Both of them did that without any obligation or mandate of Mosaic law upon them. It came from their heart. It was then codified in the Old Testament once Moses gave the law, but it was something that happened even prior to the law. So you have to be very careful if you're the one looking for a loophole or excuse. I don't have to give a tithe. That was Old Testament. Well, (laughs) That was law. Well, it really wasn't. It was a principle established prior to the law, codified in the law. But then when we get to the New Testament, 
We're not under law. We're under grace. But honestly, grace should be a much higher motivator than even legalism and law and obligation because love does way more. So the New Testament teaches, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and other places, for Christians, the principle of generous giving. That is, that we are to give, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, 1 Corinthians 16, that we are to give routinely, the Bible teaches, there should be a routineness about our giving, not sporadic every once in a while, or, oh, hey, we got ahead a little bit, let's give a little money to the Lord or to the work of God or to the church routinely that we routinely systematically give that we give relative and proportion to our income to what we've determined as we've prayed about it talked about it if we're single we made our own decision or if we're married with our spouse what we feel the lord wants us to do is an act of worship and to support the work of his kingdom so it's it's routine it's systematic it's relative to our income And it's something that we're to do generously, that we're to give unto the Lord in a generous way. Personally, I can just say this from a personal perspective, since I've been a Christian, to me, 10% of my income since I've been a Christian, I'm not saying this as a pastor, 10% of my income under the Lord has always been something as a starting point for me. Because I feel like if it was happening prior to the law and under the law, they gave 10%, well, I'm experiencing grace, man. I'm not experiencing the law, so 10% is just to me, it it was a starting point. Uh, And now that being said, some people, again, as I say, relative, to give 10% of their income, it may shipwreck them. And if you're going to give 10% of your income and you can't pay your mortgage and then you're going to come to us and ask us to give you benevolence help, probably not good to give 10% of your income. You catch on the drift there. (laughs) So again, God doesn't obligate us to do anything. God wants us to give freely and generously, and if we can't do it freely and generously without being grudging over it, we really shouldn't do it anyway. God's not raising money. God's not broke. God's not desperately in need of our resources. It's good for us to give because we're greedy, selfish people, and it's good for us to learn how to depend upon God and participate in his work and do it as an act of worship. So again, for some people, that may be something that they're not able to do at this point in time yet, or they may not even have the faith to trust the Lord at that point in time yet. It may just be something they're not ready to do yet. That's between a person and the Lord. There are other people that 10% is something that doesn't even phase them. Potentially, relative to their income, they could give way more than 10% and still be doing perfectly fine, being able to live off of a a remainder of what they have because God's blessed them and endowed them with wealth. And I know some people who have a wonderful heart of giving uh, and are able to go above and beyond even that type of a thing. So again, it's not an issue of percentages. We have biblical principles. It's more of an issue of that you reconcile in your heart. I am supposed to give, supposed to give systematically it's a part of my worship it's to be done in faith routinely and i predetermine and plan in advance what i'm going to do not wait until i'm sitting in the pew or the church seat and here comes the basket and i go oh that guy next to me dropped in a 20 i feel really awkward now no that's not how it's supposed to work you're supposed to plan in advance and you do it systematically between you and the lord and it's done as an act of worship so again Some of you are saying you belabor that way too long. Well, look, we don't routinely talk about this, but when it comes up in God's word, we need to understand what the scripture says. 
And I think, quite honestly, sometimes the reason a lot of Christians at times even find themselves having financial struggles sometimes is because in a number of different ways, not just this area, they don't manage their money the way God advises them to manage their money. And I'm not saying that's the reason everyone may struggle at times financially, but there are some people who at times may be struggling financially just because they're not honoring the Lord first and foremost as their provider and giving him the first fruits of their resources and trusting God to bless their remainder in the way that God wants to bless their remainder. So here, as they're coming back in line with things spiritually, this was something that had to be addressed, and the people are responding. They're bringing, it says, abundantly the tithe of everything, laying it in heaps. And verse 7 says, in the third month, they then began laying them in heaps, piles, the idea is of this stuff. And they finished in the seventh month. So for four months, they're just kind of playing catch up here. They're bringing in piles and piles of resources as their hearts are stirred. And such a beautiful thing here. Hezekiah is not having to, you know, pressure the people. He just spoke it and the people are responding graciously. They, they want to give to the Lord. Verse 9 says, then Hezekiah questioned the priests and the Levites concerning the heaps. And Azariah, the chief priest from the house of Zadok, answered and said, since the people began to bring the offerings into the house of the Lord, we have had enough to eat and have had plenty left. The idea is we've had not only sufficient, but we actually have excess because everyone is giving together and everyone is giving generously and graciously for the Lord has blessed his people and what is left is this great abundance. Interesting, he saw this as a blessing of the Lord, that he blessed his people to have a generous heart and to trust God and give over as an act of worship these things. And he said, we, we have more than we need now. There's abundance here. We have excess. So they have to figure out what to do with that excess. So verse 11 says, Hezekiah, the king commanded them to prepare rooms, that is storage rooms in the house of the Lord. And they prepared them and they faithfully brought in the offerings, the tithes and the dedicated things. And Coniah, the Levite, had charge of them. So there was someone designated to be responsible, the oversight of where they were storing these offerings and resources that were brought in. And Shimei, his brother, was the next. He was kind of second in charge, helping out Coniah. And then all of those names, who I'm not going to try and pronounce, verse 13, were overseers. They were helping out in the process. Again, they, they needed multiple people to manage all this in oversight. Under the hand of Coniah, they served under his authority. Shimei, his brother, and the commandment of Hezekiah, the king of Azariah, the ruler of the house of God. Verse 14, Kor, the son of Imna, the Levite, who was the keeper of the east gate, was over the freewill offerings to God to distribute the offerings of the Lord and the most holy things. So he was responsible for the distribution. Uh, so some were providing oversight to the, to the managing of the resources coming in, documenting them, keeping track of them, putting them in storerooms, making sure they were safe. This is all picture of stewardship. And notice there's excess and there's abundance, but excess and abundance was never a reason to become wasteful or sloppy in management. They were to manage things in a way that was done well, in a way that was orderly. They were faithful. They were using good stewardship. Here it says, I love how even in the New Testament, Jesus shows the value of good stewardship. Remember when there's the feeding of the 5,000? You remember that miracle? 
And it says at the end of the feeding of the 5,000, it says that Jesus tells them to go out, the disciples, and to gather up the fragments of what was left of the, of the bread and the fish. And there were 12 baskets full, and they brought them back to the Lord. Now, whenever I read that, I, I first always thought to myself, let's see, Jesus just took five loaves and two fish, and he fed thousands of people miraculously. Why do we got to pick up crumbs? Do we really need crumbs? I mean, Jesus just made tons and tons of resources. But what was Jesus perhaps teaching his disciples? Look, just because I can provide, don't get sloppy and wasteful. Go pick up the fragments. Anything I give to you is worth being a good steward of. And so he sends them out to gather the fragments. And here, I I love the picture. The picture, again, in the things of God, the worship life of his people. There were those who were stewards and overseers assistance it says in the cities verse 15 to distribute the allotments they they kept record of the distributions of the allotments to their brethren by their division to the great as well as the small besides these males from the three years old and up who were written in the genealogy they distributed to everyone who entered the house of the lord his daily portion for the work of his service by his division and to the priests who were written in the genealogy according to their father's house, and to the Levites from 20 years old and up. Remember, under David, that was the age they entered into active ministry. At the age of 20 years old is when the Levites then were engaged into their full-time ministry, if they were from that tribe, according to their work by their divisions. And to all who were written in the genealogy, their little ones, their wives, their sons, their daughters. So there was provision for the entirety of the family, for those who were servants of the Lord, the whole company of them. For in their faithfulness, it says, they sanctified themselves in holiness. Again, the word sanctified means they set apart themselves in holiness for the things of the Lord, that they were set apart for whole and complete dedication and devotion to the service of God and the things of his life of worship for the people but again we see the management of what's happening here they were distributing the resources it says in verse 16 again giving daily portion for the work of his service so according to the service that's what they were compensated for they weren't just given money for no reason they were given money to actually render in a sense compensation for the labor that they did among god's people and verse 19 says also for the sons of aaron and the priests who were in the fields of the common lands of their city. So not just those who were serving in Jerusalem, but even those in the rural areas. Remember, the priests were given specific cities they were located in so that all throughout the land, there was always a priest or spiritual leader to help the people understand God's word, to teach them the ways of the Lord, to assist them spiritually, even in the rural areas. It says in every single city, there were men who were designated by the name by name to distribute portions to all the males among the priests who were listed by genealogies among the levites in verse 20 thus hezekiah did throughout all judah he did what was good and right and true before the lord is god and in every work that he began in the service of the house of god in the law and in the commandment to seek his god he did with all his heart And so he prospered. So just a great description of what Hezekiah did for the Lord. It was never done half-heartedly. The picture there is thoroughness. 
that whatever he did, it says, in his work for the house of the Lord, he did it with all of his heart. There was no half-heartedness in his attitude or in his efforts. Wholeheartedly, if it was done for God, it was worth doing to the best of his ability. And he did it with all of his heart. And notice, God was pleased by that, and God blessed and prospered him for doing such. Now, one would think after a great move of God, and here's this really faithful servant of the Lord, and you know, doing all these wonderful things to help God's people, and the Lord is moving powerfully, that chapter 32, verse 1 would then say, and after that, Hezekiah lived happily ever after, problem-free. Things went fantastic all the time. But look what it says, chapter 32, verse 1. After these deeds of faithfulness, that's faithfulness to the Lord. After these deeds of faithfulness, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. Again, the Assyrians at this time were a world-dominating power, and they were ruthless, brutal, barbaric people in the way they treated individuals. If they came into a city and there was any resistance, they would just be known to just decapitate every resident man, woman, boy, girl, and just stack up their skulls outside of the city as a representation to any traveler in the area. If you have any interest in resisting us, that's how little we value you and we're conquering you either way. So you can keep your heads or lose them. I mean, these people, if you read some of their practices, were barbaric. They were ruthless. And so now this ruthless enemy, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, comes up against Judah and encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them over to himself. So he's now going to attack Jerusalem and the people of God and Hezekiah, this very godly king who's been doing nothing but what is good and right in the sight of the Lord. But yet enemy attack is on the horizon. And this is often the case in our lives spiritually as well that when we do what is faithful and good and right, there will be enemy attack. There'll be spiritual warfare and resistance. It's a part of the process at times. And we may think, well, Lord, I've been faithful to you. Shouldn't everything go perfect? Shouldn't everything go well? Shouldn't everything go easy? Well, uh, not necessarily, uh, because we have adversaries that want to resist and to come against us. So verse 2 says, and when Hezekiah saw, he discerned, notice this enemy encroaching, that Sennacherib had come and that his purpose was to make war against Jerusalem. So he realizes I'm being threatened and this is going to be an effort to oppose. Notice what he did, verse 3, and this shows godly wisdom. He consulted with his leaders and commanders. The idea there is he sought counsel. He didn't just say, well, this is what I think I'll do and I'm just going to push forward with it. He, he sought counsel. He consulted with the other leaders, people around him. The Bible says what? Safety is found in a multitude of counselors because we don't always see things properly at times with our limited perspective. So it is safe, the Bible says, to receive counsel from a few other people. Again, you have to be careful where you receive counsel from. You got to make sure you're getting good counsel, godly counsel from people you respect and who love the Lord and, and who love you and trust you and want you. But it's healthy to allow other people to offer counsel in tense and difficult situations so that you don't end up becoming subject to being harmed and further destroyed and losing battles unnecessarily. 
So Hezekiah here says, you know, this is a tough situation. Let me consult some leaders. Let me bring around me some advisors who can give some input and I can take into consideration what they say as I make my decision here. So he consults with his leaders and his commanders so they can give him perspective. And one of the things he does, it says, verse 3, is he stops the water from the springs which were outside the city and they helped him. The idea is they helped him. They gave him helpful input and then they assisted him in implementing as he followed through with this idea as the result of their consultation of what would be best in this given situation. Now, when it says here to stop the water from the springs, which were outside the city, look over with me, if you would, down into verse 30. This is what it's referring to. It says verse 30 of the same chapter, this same Hezekiah also stopped up the water outlet of the upper Gihon, that is the springs of Gihon, which would be outside the city boundaries of Jerusalem. And he brought water by tunnel to the west side of the city of David. He brought the water into the area of what was called the Pool of Siloam. And Hezekiah prospered in his works. What this is describing, and we have you know historical, archaeological representation of this today, what's called Hezekiah's Tunnel. If you go over to Israel and you're not claustrophobic, you can actually walk through Uh, this tunnel there that was built and constructed in the days of Hezekiah. And what basically took place is Hezekiah and his leaders recognized, okay, outside of the city wall at the spring of Gihon is a primary fresh water source. And if we allow the enemy to encamp against us and they have access to that water source and we leave it vulnerable, they're going to use that for themselves or they're going to cut off our water supply and we are going to be done with real quick inside of the city here. So what Hezekiah wisely does, thinking strategically, being flexible in the situation, is he says, look, what we should do is build a tunnel that brings that water from outside of the city underground into the area inside the city so that our enemy doesn't have access to our quality resources of water, which was vital in that arid climate, and they don't steal from us a vital resource. So they began to dig... And what's amazing is 1,700 feet through solid rock, working from both ends, digging underground through solid bedrock. Keep in mind, no jackhammers. We're talking about swinging picks and axes and chiseling away through solid rock, grunt labor, men working hard, sweating, no electric lighting, with lamps and lanterns, nobody taking electronic measurements from none of this kind of stuff, just working and together miraculously, ultimately being able to join together in the middle, which created this tunnel, which preserved the water that the people of God needed so that it flowed underground from the spring of Gihon into the city itself there at the pool of Siloam, 1,700 feet Hezekiah's tunnel through rock. Me, amazing amazing what God led them and enabled them to actually be able to do, to sustain them, to help them. And again, protecting what was in a sense, a vulnerable thing so that the enemy didn't come in and destroy that upon them. They, they took this effort here and brought the water in. It says verse four, thus many people gathered together who stopped up all the springs and the brook, it says that ran through the land saying, notice 
why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? So all the people said, look, why should they steal our water source? Let's be wise. Let's not give them what they need and let them rob us of what we need. Let's use wisdom here. Let's let's do what's necessary. Verse five. And he strengthened himself and built up all the wall that was broken, raised it up to the towers and built another wall outside and also repaired the millow in the city of David. So he's reinforcing the infrastructure around the city. It says also, verse five, he repaired the millow in the city, made weapons and shields in abundance. Verse six, then he sent military captains over the people, gathered them together in the open square in the city of the gate. And he gave them encouragement saying, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid nor dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitude that is with them, for there are more with us than with him. With him is the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So take notice of a few things what happened here. Hezekiah is doing what he can to respond to this, in a sense, difficult situation, this enemy invasion that's coming upon him. And notice very clearly it says that Hezekiah was reinforcing the infrastructure. He was rebuilding walls of protection around the city of Jerusalem. It tells us he was increasing their weapon arsenal. Verse 5, weapons and shields were being made in abundance. He also set military captains over the people and gather them together. In other words, he's doing a lot of practical stuff. He's not just saying, well, let's just pray and see what happens. He's going to pray. We're going to see that in the next few verses, and I'm not diminishing the value of prayer. But prayer never negates practical responsibility. The Bible doesn't tell us to be spiritual is to be impractical. Or to be spiritual is to be irresponsible. And sometimes we can even make that mistake, and I've seen that mistake made in the lives of people I talk to at times. Well, well, well I'm, I'm just praying about that. Well, you know, I, I, I know that I, I need a job. Well, I'm just praying God gives me a job. Well, great. I'm praying God gives you a job too, but you also need to put out some applications. You also need to get off your that. I was looking for the right word there. And go knock on some doors and do some stuff or take any odd job you can or do whatever you need. to. Do. You need to do some practical things, too. Again, God wants us to be responsible, to be practical, but also, yes, to be prayerful and to be dependent. There are certain things the Bible is very clear that God expects us to do. And then there are certain things that God will do for us graciously. And sometimes God's provision may come miraculously through some special means and praise the Lord when it does. Sometimes God's provision may come through a practical means like opening the door to get us a job at one of the places we applied to or giving us an opportunity of somebody saying, hey, I, I could use an extra hand. You looking for some side work? And again, but so important that we recognize this cooperative balance we find in the word of God of personal responsibility, being practical, responsible, doing what things we should as people using wisdom, using judgment, just making good decisions and making conscious efforts, but then also trusting the Lord 
know, Pastor Chuck had such a wonderful statement he kind of coined, many of which have lingered around for a while. But one of them, he would often just say, look, do your best and then just commit the rest. But again, there's that balance there. But do your best. You do your best and then commit the rest to God and trust God to work. Trust God to move by his spirit, to open doors, to bless your efforts, to create opportunities, to intervene where he can help you miraculously if the practical efforts don't come through. So here, they're making practical efforts to fight off their enemy, but they're also going to be praying, we're going to see, in this very same chapter as well, crying out for God's help, protection, and intervention. And I love the heart of Hezekiah as he does these things. Notice he also says, gave the people encouragement, saying to them, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or dismayed before the king of Syria. Now, the reason why he's saying, be strong, don't be afraid, have courage, guess what, is because they're afraid. Because when we face scary things and threatening circumstances, it is natural to be afraid. It's natural to be afraid. Sometimes as Christians, we almost feel condemned when we get afraid. We feel like somehow we're doing, I'm, oh, I'm so, I feel so horrible, I'm afraid, I feel so horrible, I'm worried. No, that's called normal. It's natural. You wouldn't be human if you didn't be afraid. <laughs> Why do you think God says so many times in his word, don't be afraid? Because he knows we get afraid, and he just doesn't want us to stay afraid. He wants us to have confidence in him. He wants to replace our fear with faith and reliance upon him. He wants to settle our worries and take away our anxieties. But it is human to feel that way. And often God will use someone in our life to speak words of encouragement to us. I so appreciate when people do that in my life. And you perhaps have experienced your life when someone like Hezekiah will, will give words of encouragement. When you're down or maybe you're just worried or concerned or you're afraid of something that you're facing. And, and the Lord brings someone to say, look, you be strong. You keep looking up. You, you keep your eyes on the Lord. You keep focusing on him, and, and he's going to come through in this situation. I love what he draws to their attention in verse 8. He says, look, with our enemy is an arm of flesh. Yes, he's got a great arsenal on his side. Yes, from a fleshly, earthly, human perspective, he's got a lot of arsenal and a lot of resources. With him is the arm of flesh. But he says, but with us is God. We've got God. We have the arm of God on our side, the hand of the Lord that is much more powerful than the arm of flesh. He says, the Lord is with us and he's going to help us to fight our battles. And, you know, that's perhaps something we need to remember once in a while. Yeah, maybe from the perspective that you're looking at, it seems like that you are way, in a sense, outmatched. But the Lord is with you and the Lord's going to help you. And the Lord's going to fight battles for you because the battle ultimately belongs to the Lord. And with the Lord on your side, that's a great, great majority. No matter who's against you, the Bible says, if God before us, who can be against us? The idea is, if God before us, who can be against us and succeed? The idea is, if God before us, who can be against us? Or we might better say, who cares who's against us? Because God's for us. God's on your side. God's going to fight your battles and stand with you and give you his strength and exercise his mighty arm. And notice as the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, sent his servants to Jerusalem. And watch what he's going to do. It says, he sent them, verse 10, thus 
says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, in what do you trust that you remain under siege in Jerusalem? Does not Hezekiah persuade you to give yourselves over to die by famine, by thirst, saying the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Syria? Has not the same Hezekiah taken away his high places and altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem, saying you shall not worship before one altar and burn incense on it? Do you notice what Hezekiah, the voice of the enemy, is trying to do? He's trying to instill doubt in the hearts of God's people. He's trying to instill confusion in their minds, saying to them, look, do you really believe that Hezekiah is accurate telling you that God's going to just work it all out. That God's going to come through and help you. He says, isn't Hezekiah the one who's been going around tearing down altars and saying you got to worship one God exclusively? And he's trying to cause confusion. Yes, Hezekiah had done that, but that was right in the sight of the Lord. And, and he's just trying to create confusion and instill doubt in the hearts of the people. And that's exactly what our enemy tries to do as well spiritually. He tries to cause doubt to arise in our hearts to make us to question God and question his faithfulness and and to be confused perhaps because we don't understand maybe fully why something is happening the way that it is he says verse 13 do you not know what i had in my fa- what i and my fathers have done to all the people of other lands were the gods of the nations of those lands in any way able to deliver their lands out of my hand who was there among all the gods of those nations that my fathers utterly destroyed that could deliver his people from my hand, that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand. Now, therefore, he says, verse 15, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or persuade you like this, and do not believe him, for no God of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand. So again, the voice of the enemy trying to instill doubt, trying to diminish faith, trying to create fear in the hearts of God's people so that they won't rely upon the Lord, so that they'll be overwhelmed by fear and then react in fear and just do things because they feel like if, if, if we don't do something, it's all going to fall apart. If we don't somehow take control of the situation and, and again, just trying to make them think in ways that instill fear in their minds and diminish their faith to trust the Lord, he says, don't, don't rely upon the Lord. Furthermore, his servant spoke against the Lord and against his servant Hezekiah. He also wrote letters to revile the Lord God of Israel and to speak against him, saying, as the gods of the nations of other lands have not delivered their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. And then they called, it says, out with a loud voice in the Hebrew language to the people of God, saying to them on the wall to frighten them. Notice, this is the tactic of the enemy, to frighten them, to trouble them, that they might take the city. And they spoke against the God of Jerusalem, against the gods of the people of the earth, the work of man's hands. Now, because of this, verse 20, look, because of this, King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed and cried out to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who cut down every mighty man of valor, leader and captain, 
in the camp of the king of Assyria. And so he returned shamefaced to his own land. And when he had gone into the temple of his God, some of his own offspring struck him down with the sword. Thus the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all the others, and guided them on every side. Again, here we have record of something that we already looked at in First uh, Kings chapters 18 to 20. Isaiah records the same accounts in chapters 36 through 39. But this record of these constant efforts of the enemy to instill doubt, to try and bring fear into God's people's hearts and minds, to diminish their faith and their trust in God, and the response that Hezekiah takes together with Isaiah the prophet, this other godly man is beautiful. It says there that as this happened, verse 20, they prayed and cried out to the God of heaven. They prayed and cried out to the God of heaven. Again, they did practical things. But see, here's the other side. They also said, God, we did what we could practically, but there's nothing else we can practically do. God, you have to intervene. You're the God of heaven. You have power to do things that we can't. And you know what God did? It tells us there in verse 21, we saw it before, God sent an angel. And it tells us in the other accounts in the Old Testament that one angel that night came and destroyed 185,000 Assyrian troops. And the king went back home with his tail between his legs, shamefaced, and then his own two sons murdered him back in his own territory. Look, it looked impossible. And not only did God not have to get involved directly, God just says sent one angel. Bob. Alex, the angel. Doesn't even say it was Michael, the archangel. He sends one angel into that situation to exercise on his behalf his power. And one angel destroys in one night 185,000 Assyrian troops Problem solved. Done. God has no limitations. No limitations whatsoever. In one day, in one night, God can change everything. God has the power to do that. That's why we not only do what's practical, but we also pray. And we cry out to God and we ask God to work. And we see what God does by his great power. Let's conclude there for tonight.